You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. A reading from 2 Kings chapter 4. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is it to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It's neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey, and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with your child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push, push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me, from me and has not told me. Then she said, did I not ask my Lord, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him, and if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. 
Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him the child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind him, behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth, back and forth in the house, and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Amen. Would you pray with me and let's, let's turn our attention to this passage, okay? Let's, let's pray and ask for God's help first. O oh Lord, we come before you knowing that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word remains forever. We come before you as a community of people, who've, many of whom have had a rough week. There's been tragic losses in our church. There's been painful relationship issues in our church. Father, as we come and step into your presence, our only hope is that you're a God who speaks and who speaks clearly. He's willing to get down on your knees and even speak baby talk into our ears when we need to hear it. And so now, Father, we come before you acknowledging our ears are stopped up, we're distracted, our minds are everywhere else. Our only hope is that you will speak by your Spirit. Send your Spirit and speak. We, your servants, are listening. We ask this in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. Amen. I want to begin by asking you maybe a question. Um, I want to begin by asking you to think of the following movies and ask yourself, what do the following movies have in common, okay? Uh, the 80s classic, The Breakfast Club. Uh, the Stephen King book turned into film, 1408. Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window and Alfred Hitchcock's movie Rope. Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs and the black-and-white classic, Twelve Angry Men. What do these films have in common? If you were to guess that what they have in common is that Kyle hasn't seen them, that would be correct. I have not seen any of these movies, but that's not the point I was hoping you'd go for. Uh, what all these films actually have in common is that they're primarily set in one room. As you think about each one of these movies, I don't know if you've seen any of them or if you've seen all of them, they, the drama unfolds basically in one room. And this passage, it's a long story, there's a lot going on, but it's basically said in one room. The Shunammite woman, uh, the, the city of Shunam was a couple miles, a couple kilometers north of the capital of the northern kingdom, and all the drama unfolds in this room, this special room that she decides with her husband uh, to build. There's only four real characters in the, the play, you have, in, the, in this section, you have Elijah, you have the Shunammite woman, you have her son. And you have Elijah's servant, Gehazi. What does the room look like? Well, it seems ordinary enough. It has a bed, it has a desk, it has a lamp, and it has a chair. But to the reader, probably the first reader, especially to the first uh, the people who, had, who are reading this in times of exile, 
as they pick up this scripture, they, this is a strange room. First, it's on the top of the house, almost like you have to ascend a mountain to get to it. And there you find something like a table with a menorah on it, a chair, something like a throne, and a bed, which is something like an altar. I think the reason, what we're supposed to pick up as we think about this particular room, the reason the drama is going to unfold in this room is because this room is like a little temple. It's like the temple in Jerusalem that you had to ascend the mountain of the Lord to go into, temple where you're greeted with these lamps, very similarly, where there's an altar. Here we have a story unfolding, and this temple seemingly in the middle of nowhere. And we have Elisha referred to almost exclusively all over this passage, not as Elisha the prophet, but as the holy man of God. What's going on here? Well, I think in this particular passage, we are going to see that the holy man of God is going to be a picture of God visiting his people in this makeshift temple. And this room is going to show us how we as God's people, whether we're in times where the temple has been destroyed or we're in times far later, how we as God's people are to respond to the promises God gives us in his temple, how we are to respond to the providence we experience from God in his temple, and finally, how we are to hope in the power that will come out of his temple. I think that this is what this passage is primarily about. Hang with me if it seems confusing. I hope to help you make some sense of it. First, this room is going to be a setting where we learn how we are to respond to God's promises. It'll be somewhat brief here, but Elijah is given these special accommodations. It seems as though he frequently travels through this region and here is a good and godly woman who often offered accommodations. And rather than having Elijah have to ask every time, go through the potential embarrassment of asking, can I stay with you? This woman, who we are told is rich, asks, could, could her husband build a home for Elijah, a little house for Elijah on the roof? And that's exactly what happens. This Shunammite woman seems to be in my opinion, maybe one of my favorite characters of the whole Bible as I've continued to explore this. She is godly with her wealth. And when Elijah says, what can I do for you? When Elijah acknowledges, I don't like being in people's debts. Your kindness to me, I, I want to give my blessing to you. I want the blessing of our, the God of Israel to come upon you for your kindness to me, the servant of God. She is so content she says that she does not need Elisha to pull any political tricks. She will be all right. And the only time we find out what she really wants is when Elijah's servant, Gehazi, realizes that this Shunammite woman has no child and her husband is old. Certainly, Elisha would have known that. But it's brought to his intention by his servant. And the narrator seems to go into great detail that... The woman it needs to experience God's blessing. She needs to experience God's promise. And so in verse 15, where is she standing when she hears God's promise? She's standing in the doorway. And what does she hear? She hears the promise her, her heart had been longing for, that she was too, too tied up, too, too, filled with too much pain to even ask. She's given a promise. About this time next year, you will be with child. A promise similar to Sarah who later has Isaac, Rebecca, who is found to be pregnant with Jacob and Esau. 
Mrs. Manoah, the, the mother of Samson, Hannah, the mother of Solomon. This isn't the promise that's new to us. This faithful woman of God hears this clear promise that God loves to give. You see, this Shunammite woman is a contrast to the women at the beginning of the chapter. The woman we looked at last week, you may remember, she was extremely impoverished. But what did she have? She had sons. This woman has everything, it seems. At least she has wealth and resources and status. But what she lacks is an heir. She, too, is vulnerable. She, too, if her husband dies, has very difficult recourse, holding on to her property, lest a family member, if a family member fails to step in. She's in a very vulnerable situation. And Elisha gives her this promise from God, this special blessing. And she can hardly believe it's true. Please, please don't deceive your servant. What do we learn about how we're to respond to the promises of God, though? If I gave you a million-dollar check... I wrote it right here, signed my name on it, and handed it to you from Kyle Hackman. You would have every reason to go to the bank with a measure of doubt. What is Kyle doing? Maybe he's independently wealthy and he's hit it so well. Maybe this check will be good. I wouldn't blame you for at least going to the bank and hoping that they might cash it. But if Jeffrey Bezos himself came in here and he sat down... And he heard the story that you shared with him, and he, he wrote a check for a million dollars. And you went to the bank, what would your attitude be towards that check? My goodness, this is such a fraction of his wealth, he won't even notice that it disappears. He probably loses this every second as the market continues to tank the past couple of months, right? You go to the bank with confidence, knowing that he's good to his word, that this check will be heard. Will, this check, sorry, will be received. The money will come to you because of the resources he has. I want to be brief here, but friends, this passage is telling us that when the Lord gives you promises from his temple, don't waste your time doubting. He's got more resources than Jeffrey Bezos. Hard to believe, but he does. He's got more ability. The bank account is much deeper to draw upon, and if he gives you a promise, don't waste your time. He is true to his word. Take it to the bank. When he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, you do not need to waste your time wondering if he's telling the truth. When he says he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can handle, what you can bear. Friends, he's got the resources in his bank account. There is no need to doubt as you cash in that check. Elijah's promise from God to this woman feels too good to be true, but it is absolutely true. Friends, what this means to us is that in your, in your Bible, at risk of sounding cheesy, you are walking around with all kinds of checks. Checks with your name on them. Promises our Lord has given to you. The only question is, why won't you look at them and with faith, take them to the bank, lift them up in prayer, ask that God would hold true to his word. This is how we're to respond to God's promises. Not waste any time in wavering in faith, but to trust. But this passage isn't necessarily just about the way in which uh, the Shunammite woman questions God's promise, and indeed God's promise turns to be true, because this passage really hinges. The, the narrative, the, the tension just climbs to a peaking point based on what? Based on how God's providence unveils in her life. Because what happens in God's providence? The miraculous son, the son of promise, the son who's born through grace and through gift, He's out in the field. He comes down with a headache, probably something very, very common in this part of the world. His father sends him into his mother. 
He comes, he's small enough to sit on his mother's lap, and in God's wise providence and plan, which is a mystery to us, the son of promise dies. No more breath. You will be pregnant. She's pregnant. It all seems like a cruel trick now. The boy has died. How does the Shunammite woman respond? Well, she does what she ought to do. She's got to get to the temple. She's got to get to the man of God who can do something in the place where the man of God dwells, the place where heaven and earth seem to collide and intersect. She's got to get this boy to the temple, the room. This is what verse 21 is all about. She takes the boy to the room, lays the boy on this altar-like bed. She tells her husband, can I have the servants? I need the donkey. I must go see the man of God. The husband says, why? It's not, a, it's not festival season. He's not likely to be passing through. And how does she respond? In Hebrew, shalom. In our translation, all is well. You see, she had lost her child, but she had not lost her faith. She might have questioned God's kindness to her in giving her the child, but she's not questioned God's kindness at this point. He's no cruel tyrant. She won't doubt God's promises, even when his providence seems to come and crash course with his promises. His providence, the way he works out his plans, is, are absolutely perplexing. And so she takes this problem to the man of God, the giver of the promises. She needs the man of God because she knows that if the power of God is going to come upon her again, it's going to be mediated through the man of God. She leaves the child in the temple room. She stands before Elijah in verse 12. She seeks Elijah in verse 22 and 25. By the time we get to the end, she arrives at Elijah. She's grasping onto his heels. As the pains of God's providence crush her, how does she respond? She says, all is well. As she runs to find Elijah, Elijah sends out his servant, Gehazi, and her servant asks, how is your son? Is it well with your son? Is it well with your husband? And how does she respond? All is well. Shalom, shalom, shalom. Some of you know the story, 1871. It was a horrible year for a man named Horatio Spatford. He's a Chicago lawyer who was quite wealthy. His young son tragically died that year. The same year, the Chicago fire ripped through the city and washed out his entire holdings. All of his life savings gone. For the next two years, he did whatever he could to recover his losses, and he did okay. And he committed himself to following the Lord. As the stress of life was getting to him, he decided that he was going to go with his family over to England to follow the, the, the American evangelist D.L. Moody as he, uh, performed, as he put on these evangelistic crusades all around England. It was a break from his labors, an attempt to serve the Lord. He was going to be an assistant with Moody. Last minute, as he was to board the ship, he was called back for business and he was delayed. As some of you know, on November 22nd of that year, his family's ship was struck by a ship hauling iron. Tragically, the, shri- the ship shr- sank. And all four of Spatford's daughters died. His wife famously was rescued and saved, and she made it to England. She sent back a telegram saying famously, saved alone. A couple days later, he boarded a ship to go be with his wife in England and to bring her back 
to Chicago. And you may remember, as the ship crossed the area where his daughter's ship had sunk and his daughter's life ended, all four of them, I have to believe he was reflecting on the response of the Shunammite woman when he penned, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Certainly he got the words to this hymn from the response of the Shunammite woman. How do we respond to God's mysterious promise? We go to the temple, of course. We find the man of God, and we seek and we ask for the power of God again afresh to fall upon us. We trust God's promise, and we say, because God has made these promises, though I may die, it is well, it is well with my soul. Listen, providence has been hard on many in our church. I don't even have to say in general. This past week, God's mysterious plan has been tough dare I say, cruel from our perspective. Close family members lost, relationships run amok. How are you going to respond? How are you going to respond when it feels like God is not working out His providence in the ways that are incongruent with His promises? Friends, don't doubt. Don't doubt. You've got to find this temple. You've got to find this man of God, and you've got to take your promises to Him. You've got to take, sorry, your, your problems to Him. Holding on to God's promises. Don't run to strategy. Don't run to your best made plans and wisdom. Put yourself under God's word. Hold God to His promises. Find this temple. Find this room. Find this man of God. And join with her in saying, it is well. Though I may be totally crushed, it is well. It is well. Listen, there's something that has happened to this woman as she's received God's blessing and her faith has been nourished, that she has the confidence. She has the confidence to stand and bear the worst. The worst things become bearable for her, but even the best things in this world become leavable for her as well as she leaves her son at this temple and seeks to find the man of God. How are we going to respond to God's mysterious providence? Third, let's ask, How do we respond to God's power? How are we going to respond when we experience God's power? It's interesting. Elijah hears the need of the Shunammite woman as she says, my son. She eventually understands that the son is dead. And so Elijah makes a plan. He sends his servant ahead. I'm presuming his servant's younger or can run faster. And he gives his servant his staff. And he says, lay this staff on the boy. Maybe this will be how God's power is activated. Here's Elijah, the man of God, the man who's in tune with God, the man who's performing miracles, miracles almost no human being on the earth is capable of performing. Does the staff work? It doesn't seem to activate the God's power the way it should. So Elijah comes with the woman. And what do we hear next? They pray. What happens after the prayers? Still nothing. Still no breath in the lungs. Next, what does Elijah do? What may seem strange to you, he stretches himself out over the child. Does anything happen after the first time? Nope. He stands up, he paces back and forth, and he does it again. And then all of a sudden, the kid starts sneezing, goes into this sneezing fit. Seven sneezes. 
I have no idea what's going on there. You have some very smart academics in, your in the room. I hope they understand why the boy sneezes seven times. But all I know is he sneezes seven times, and life enters back into the boy. What is going on? Well, I think at the very least we're seeing our God is not like a machine. He's not like a, a vending machine that you put in the coins and the miracles come out as you press the proper button. He's a person and his ways are mysterious to us. He's not some sort of uh, computing program that if you enter the right line of code, the result is going to be the miracle you had looked for. He sends his power, but he sends his power when and how he sees fit. But the deeper question is a mysterious one. What is Elijah doing? Why is he stretching himself out over the body? Why do we read that his mouth is over the mouth? If you know anything about the Jewish law, this is absolutely prohibited. And I think what's happening here is there's something of an imputation, a double imputation taking place between this boy and between Elijah. Elijah, the clean man of God, is putting himself over the unclean, dead corpse of the boy. And he's absorbing the uncleanliness of the boy to himself. And he's sending his cleanliness to the boy. Interesting enough, during uh, the Roman Empire, there was a gruesome way that murderers were actually executed. Uh, there was some executions that took place, not a lot, but there is some record of them, where the dead victim, the one who had been murdered by a, a criminal, by a murderer, was taken with the murderer for crucifixion. And the dead body of the one who had been murdered was placed on the ground, face up, arms out. And the murderer was put on top of the body of the one that he had murdered. And they were tied together, face to face, arm to arm, body to body, mouths open. The idea was that the murderer, in some senses, as the toxins and poisons came out of his mouth, and dare I say, even maggots came out of his mouth, and it would slowly enter the mouth of the murderer, and some sort of retribution could be extracted and enacted in our world by the one who had died. What is Elijah doing? Elijah is absorbing death into himself. The holy man of God is taking on death itself, and in this temple, on this bed-like altar, Elijah gives himself for the boy. And it shouldn't surprise us as we gather under the name of one greater than Elijah, Jesus Christ, that what Elisha is doing is telling us what our Lord Jesus Christ is going to do for us as his arms will be stretched out on that cross. He will, as it were, take on the toxins and the poisons and even the maggots of the corroding and dead bodies of all of his people. Why will he do that? So we don't have to face death. All of our sinfulness will be transferred to Jesus. All of Jesus' righteousness will be transferred to us. It comes to us now by faith. We'll experience it fully at the final resurrection when our Lord makes all things right. In the same way, God from heaven would look down on this dead boy. And he couldn't see the boy, so to speak. All he would see is Elijah stretched out over him. So also by faith now, when you look and rest and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father looks down on this earth and he sees the outstretched hands of his Son. He sees death absorbed and conquered and the cleanliness of our Lord Jesus Christ passed on to you. This is why this story is given. Friends, the first audience who would have received this narrative would have received it during a time when the temple had been destroyed, when they had been dispersed all throughout various foreign empires. 
Some of them would have been so connected, disconnected from the way that their ancestors worshipped, it would seem as though all is lost. And what does this passage tell them? God will provide a way. He will provide a temple, even if it's on top of somebody's house. He will provide a man of God who will come and through the temple bring God's blessing again. He will come despite his mysterious province and breathe new life into our nation. Make us a people again. Friends, he's done that in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's come to be for us one much greater than Elijah, but also to be in and of himself a new and final temple. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, this temple is accessible wherever we find ourselves as we cry out in faith to him. And by our Lord Jesus Christ, we can hear the news forgiven. We can feel his breath of life coming in us. It makes us sneeze seven times almost impulsively. The life of God poured and channeled in through us that we might be his people, even in times of deep, deep and dark and mysterious providence. Friends, I don't know what you've gone through this week. As a pastor alone, I've had a hard week. I have no idea how some of you are even here this morning with all that you've been through. I am so, so happy to see some of your faces after the trials and tragedies that have set before you this week. But hear me clearly. I have no idea how God is working out his providence in this world, but I promise you this. He is a good God and he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. And I promise you this, no matter what tragedy you have been through this week, we have one better than the man of God. We have the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ, who came to be for us a great Savior, a great hero, a great hope. He will make all things right. By faith, your sins can all be forgiven now. By faith, he will breathe life again, even to those relatives you've lost. They will taste life again because of Christ. This is the hope of this passage. He's come to be for us this true and great temple as we are scattered throughout the world. Cry out to this, our Lord. Receive his breath afresh. Hope in the new life that he offers. This is the good news. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, this passage uh, is mysterious to us. Even this week, people lost loved ones, and it seems strange to us that in your providence, you didn't see fit to resurrect some of our loved ones even this week. Some of us are in relationships that are falling apart. And in your providence, it doesn't seem that you're breathing new life into these relationships. Father, in this time as we wander, we wander waiting for the day when you make all things right, when sin is no more, when your church is truly and fully one in public. As we wonder why your plans are rolling out as they were, would you remind us with your presence, that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us, and that in Jesus Christ, the breath is coming. New life can be tasted now and fully participated. It's just around the corner. Make us a people who hope in the resurrection this day. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.